Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to yet another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My next guests are unsung heroes of the music industry and deserve to be bigger than they are. They are failure. Welcoming to the show, Ken Andrews, Greg Edwards, and Kelly Scott, the members of failure. The band's sixth studio LP, Wild Type Droid, was just released December 3rd. I think you're going to love it. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you check it out already. Truth be told, Fantastic Planet was undoubtedly one of the greatest records of its generation. And if I can just say so, I think it should have been a bigger record than it was. Um, so if you haven't checked that record out too, we'll, we reference that a lot. And I did find out a lot about these guys that I did not know in doing the interview. Great bunch of guys. Great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Check them out now. The Guys in Failure coming up next on Lip Service. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out, at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott Lips, and welcome to another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. I'm with one of my favorite rock bands today, Failure. Hey guys, how are you? Hello. Introducing all you guys, Kelly, we got Ken, we have Greg. Uh, Thanks for coming in, guys. Great to see you in person. And we found out that actually we have a mutual friend, Sean Daly, which, uh, shout out to Sean Daly. Sean played with me at Courtney Love's band and still is a great friend to this day. And actually, what I didn't know about, he was actually working on a documentary you guys which is uh could you talk a little bit about that i want to get into the new record and tons of stuff going on with mm-hmm. you but but it is something that i just found out about which is pretty interesting so sean and one of uh his partners don hardy uh, another filmmaker in the bay area started filming it what like two years ago or even longer, longer. like four yeah two, three four years ago and um they got pretty far down the line and then you know the pandemic hit and it became like you know uh, like so some projects are uh you know kind of like uh pet projects you know that you do on the side yeah f- you know thinking about the you know kind of long-term thing of it and they just couldn't do that anymore they had to take jobs that were actually pain (laughs) and uh so it would be an amazing documentary by the way ken because your story is such a fascinating one i mean the band was together for years broke up for 17 years i believe and got back together for the last three records now so i for one would love to watch this documentary because i think it'd be an amazing it's it's an amazing story um and i and i want to get into your whole history but take me back to the beginning when you guys started i think it was like what was it about 1990 that the band formed uh 89, 89 we formed i think we had our our first like uh rehearsal together uh in mid 89 um played about 20 shows 
in Hollywood, like at Al's Bar and 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 you know, sort of small smaller clubs, uh, cl- club lingerie, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really cool it's rock Sandy club back in the early nineties. Yeah. That's where I met Maynard. Actually, he he saw us playing there, and came up to me one, after a show and was like, "Hey, I'm in this band called Tool, and uh, we don't really like the bands that the local promoters are putting us with. We want, we want to play with you guys." And like a, maybe two or three months later, we were playing at Raji's together. Amazing. Yeah, he was on the show I think a month ago, and we, we talked a little bit about that scene from back then. Because there was two scenes, right? There was like the Raji scene, and I don't know if you remember Scream with Dale Gloria, mm-hmm. yep. and all those clubs. And then there was like the other scene, which was obviously Gazaris and the whiskey, and, and you guys obviously fit into the, you know, it was more of um, I was I, I know there was Raji's, and there was we were talking about Al's Bar, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Jabberjaw. Scream, Jabberjaw, right? Gaslight, Gaslight, right? And there was so it was obviously like a there's sort of the James Addiction scene, which you guys are more a part of. And then the other scene, which was sort of like the hair band scene that was slowly dying out at that point. Yeah. About Just starting to die out. Just starting to die out, yeah. yeah. But did you guys grow up together? Take me back if you don't mind, because Ken, I know you've had an incredible career as a producer and mixer too, but I don't, I don't, let's talk about like how you guys met and your story, because it, it is a really fascinating one. Well, I mean, the very beginning, maybe not that, that fascinating. I had a friend <laughs> who was a drummer and he was my roommate. Robert Goss, and he was the uh, first drummer for Failure. He did the first album. But he and I sort of had the idea of doing a band or trying to do a band uh, for two years. I think we talked about it in 87, as early as 87. Uh, We were both in college at the time here in LA, and we put ads in The Recycler and in Music Connection magazine back when that was a thing right that was yeah that was the thing and i saw those ads for (laughs) a a year or two i was working with someone else but i was still kind of keeping track of stuff and there weren't a lot of good ads out there looking for interesting stuff um but that one always stuck out to me because it said um moody trio seeks fretless bass player parallels with early cure bauhaus and joy division fretless and, bass player yeah actually. Well, <laughs> fretless. Like, well the funny thing is so specific the, the right? funny it's thing like... was at first it said fretless right. and then you guys dropped the fretless because you probably no one played fretless. in that atmosphere at that yeah. point which the hair metal was still right. big in that atmosphere i you know fretless was just another obstacle yeah well it was around <laughs> the time when guns was sort of really blowing up obviously but you know I guess throwing the fretless thing in the mix was just, you probably may get one like resume, you know, it's like yeah. how many people or a were bunch playing? of like music based school. All right. I mean, it was literally the case where Robert and I fielded maybe over those two years, we fielded maybe eight or 10 responses in total. And mm-hmm. we were running it in both magazines every week or month or whatever it was. Um, and none of those calls were promising enough to even get in a room with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. It was by far, I mean, it, it was the coolest uh, looking for ad that, that I'd come across, but I was kind of committed to this, this person I was working with. And as soon as that, as soon as that was broken off, um, that was the first call I made. And did you get a fretless space? I guess that's the most important uh, question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did. I, did. I did. Cause some of the, the earliest demos were done on fretless and, and uh, and I love the idea of fretless, so I was happy about that. It's amazing that bands like Guns N' Roses found each other through the recycler back then, because if you think about like where we are today and how this really, you know, it's like reading an ad, it seems so foreign, right? That concept of like, so it's amazing that you guys actually found each other and where it went. And so, but you, Ken, you didn't really start playing guitar, I don't believe, till you were 18, right? You were sort of a late bloomer in music? Yeah, yep, I had... I think I had three piano lessons when I was nine years old and they went nowhere. I hated it and never really considered playing an instrument or anything musical really until my senior year in high school. Wow. And I, my brother was a really good guitar player, my younger brother. And I just said, Hey, I want to play, show me some chords. And he was like, why have you, why are you just saying this now? I've been playing for four years. <laughs> He's, and I'm just, I don't know. Just show me some chords. 
And uh, then I spent maybe that year or so um, learning like maybe a couple records, like the Cars' first record. Great record. And playing along with that. That was a really good record to yeah. learn guitar on. Yeah. Simple, simple right? Yeah, very simple. simple. Yeah. Easy to pick out the the chords and the bar chords and stuff. And um, and to learn about ra arrangement, though, yeah. because that record is really like a good record to study if you Incredible want to just record, know yeah. about uh, pop arrangement and production. So, uh, and then it didn't take too long before I got really interested, probably too early in multi-track recording. <laughs> I mean, back then it was four track cassette. Yeah. Uh, but it just had the panning on it and nothing else. It was like, right? yeah, panning. No, yeah. no EQ. Yeah. You had four tracks panning and volume. And, you know, it's just one of those things where like, I think a lot of guitar players were going, were, were, were getting to be better guitar players. Mm. And I, you know, was going down this path of like, I, I want to overdub on myself. <laughs> you know like right now yeah. like i can barely put like four chords together but i already want to lay down those four chords and then put a, either a bass part or a, or something on it like that part of it was so that had the pull to me mm. rather than becoming a really great guitarist and some of those early influences for you guys the cure and bauhaus is it the darker side of music that brought you together would you say because obviously we're coming out of the hair metal scene and that kind of music wasn't chic a little bit, but you know, so many different scenes were sort of melody at that point. So, is that what you think brought you together—the love of the the darkness side of music? I, I think the the mood of that stuff yeah. was what brought us together. But we also loved—I mean, the Pixies were a band that that we really loved that was happening at that moment. And, sure. And uh, and and we loved uh, the classics: Beatles, Pink Floyd, um, Elton John. El mm -hmm. Elton John. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, it was pretty much everything, but I think what we, we did really respond to bands that had like a, a, a unique, strong, uh, atmospheric, emotional mood that mm -hmm. when you heard it, you just knew Resonated. who that was. Yeah. Do you remember the first songs you guys wrote together? Probably Macaque must have been pretty early. I don't know. There's a song called comfort screen man there was a song called comfort yeah, there remember was that was that was, that was an early idea screen yeah. man was was pretty early screen man was one of the ones one of the first songs that i think we did no that came from a jam yeah but no i know what i mean count my eyes okay i think count my eyes may have been the first that was at bluebird right that was the first place. and uh, yeah. and that was kind of the first song where we just started playing uh with with robert the drummer and playing each one playing our weird part and just interlocking in a strange way and calling it a song and initially you started <laughs> playing these gigs that were i guess like you said at al's bar and places like that and it was just friends mm -hmm. and then i heard a story you were telling ken how eventually we started seeing a lot more people show up that weren't our friends mm -hmm. so we had an idea that obviously something was clicking with the audience so take me back to that time period for you and just how you knew things were starting to gel and come together for the band Pre-Kelly, obviously. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, it, for me, it was a bit of confusion. I wasn't sure if the people were there for us or the next band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you never do know. Do you, you never really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what you sort of know is w when you finish playing, if everyone goes out to right, the patio, right? right, right? right. Leaves, right. <laughs> it's safer to yeah. assume that, too, so you're not yeah. let down. Right. Uh, but yeah, there were, there were a couple shows where I was like, what's going on? Like, this is more people. This is definitely more people yeah. than we're used to. And sure enough, like it wasn't too long after that that show where there were like, you know, record label people in the crowd and stuff and coming up to us and giving us their cards and stuff. And all of a sudden you meet uh, did you meet Steve Albini around 92? Was that about the time you guys met? I mean, we didn't meet in person cuz he was he was in Chicago, we were in LA, but his name came up as potential producers after we had signed with slash and they we had our demo of, of some of some form of a demo at that point and slash sent it to him and i remember i think it was randy k our our a and r person who brought us to slash um he said hey steve's into it you should 
he he wants to talk to you. And I forget, I was at a friend's house, but I, I remember taking that call <laughs> and him just being like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's cool, man. It's, it's like, could be huge. I don't know. <laughs> obviously, like, could be the next big thing. I don't know, man. Let's let's just record it, see what happens. Obviously, one of the greatest rock producers uh, ever. And so, were you were you super into his work at that point? Were you very familiar with his work? Super familiar with yeah. his work. Very familiar with his work. And then we had a second phone call. Like I don't know how how much further down the line it was. Uh, maybe just a few days, but where where we kind of reviewed or he asked me like what is your favorite stuff of mine mm. just so i know where your head right. is coming from and i was like two things real specific things the jesus lizard goat album yeah and um breeders pod album mm. and he's just he just snickered he's like yeah those are my two best records <laughs> he was yeah. just like boom that's it end of conversation and that, I, I just felt we were totally on the same page after he said that. So um, we locked it in and went to Minnesota a few weeks later. Uh, so obviously, 92, recording with Steve Albini and touring with Tool eventually, seems like you guys were definitely on the right path early on. I mean, this is pre-Kelly, right? So talk to me about when you guys met Kelly and how he came into the picture, because the sound would change. The sound changed when Kelly came in, but um, it was kind of because Greg had come in as more of a uh, collaborative songwriter, mm. actually, in between Comfort and Magnified. Um, and so our sound was changing um, during that process. And actually, truth be told, the sound changing is what led our first drummer to kind of bail because mm. he didn't like where it was going. It was going a little bit more melodic a little bit more songy yeah and i think he yeah. was just kind of like hmm. yeah uh, well ken and i that's when we started writing together in a room with a four track and and living together yeah mm -hmm. that's right and and uh you know having our two instruments on and just discovering stuff playing through uh and writing songs and one of the one of the first ones we did was bernie yeah. The demo of Bernie and we you know Bernie had this oh, yeah. weird yeah. cool pop thing we we were excited about discovering this side of us and and we played it for Rob and he he was not happy <laughs> <laughs> and how did you meet Kelly actually what we we needed so we ended up finishing the second record essentially without a drummer i mean we sort sort of had someone didn't really work out Greg ended up playing at least half the drums on that second record. Oh. Then, you know, I don't think we ever really told the label that we didn't have a drummer because we were worried that would right. freak them Shake out. Up a yeah. <laughs> so we never really told them. And so the whole process of like finishing the record, getting it mastered, scheduled for a release date, and booking tours right. just kept happening. Mm -hmm. And so. <laughs> Yeah. eventually we were like uh we uh we need a drummer yeah if we're gonna play these shows and these tours and tools asking us to go on support so we needed to find someone we put some feelers out um i actually ended up being out of town when G greg ended up auditioning a few people and so i wasn't actually there when they first got together which is because wow. kelly wow. flaked on the uh, original yeah let's back up a second okay. i missed the original audition oh right and you called me extremely upset because oh I yeah wasted your time that's right and i suggested just coming out and auditioning with greg because you wouldn't be around oh yeah i, I was pissed because i planned a trip to europe yeah mm. so i was in yeah. in europe after the main drummer auditions were supposed to have already happened but i had heard from several people don't decide until you play with this guy because he's a monster. And I was like, fuck. So I had to, so I'm in Europe, Greg plays with him and Greg calls me yeah. and he's like, yeah, this is the guy. Call, <laughs> called you from mates. From, from mates from the rehearsal. rehearsal. I mean, yeah. we'd just been playing together. I called you five minutes after I think we, we stopped. Yeah, we played through each song once. 
maybe two songs twice. And Kelly, were you in bands locally at that point? Or you've been playing on records? What was well, your that was kind of history? part of the problem yeah. is I was looking for them and playing in way too many bands. Yeah. So when we set up the audition, I just put the tape on a shelf and completely spaced out. I feel there's I a band called Plexi. You remember so Plexi? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like Norm, Norm was yeah. in this circle, right? Yeah. Because I remember him being and like one of the better yeah, drummers Locke. at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, because I feel like maybe were you guys friends? Were you friends yeah. with oh, Norm? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. It's all coming back to me. You know, it's. Uh, and Campfire Girls. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's funny. So, I, I, for me, I honestly like I one of my favorite records, I'd say the last 20 years is Fantastic Planet. So, you know, I put that record on even before this was happening. I would put that record on periodically every few years and just say, what a fucking amazing record. Mm. So, you know, for those of you who don't have that record, go out, buy the record, download the record and the new record and all the other records. But one of the greatest records. So when you came into the band for me, it took on a whole new meaning and a whole new life. And and uh, and I, I, we were talking about it kind of before we started rolling here. Your parts uh, were incredible and are incredible. And so um, rhythmically, what were you listening to? Because I feel like there was almost like a Nine Inch Nails element to sort of the the rhythms that happened within the band and just a heavy rhythmic sense that I didn't hear on the first record that took on a different kind of tone. Well, I mean, that record in particular was my failure boot camp. Yeah. And honestly, a lot of what I came into the band with, they helped me remove. Mm. Um, uh, most of it, I mean, it was 80s right, stuff. Right, right, it, You had a certain musical sensibility and sure. it just wasn't useful for what they were doing. Um, so that, I mean, was my moment. Like, that's when I joined the band. Yeah. And hours and hours and days and days, like, they molded me into and, and offered me a completely different musical language. And all the while this is happening, Slash is going through its own set of problems, the record label, right? So... You're getting ready to make Fantastic Planet, and there were there were some issues with the label, right? They were being sold or something at that point. No, it was after we had actually completed the record, or just as we were completing it. Our manager at the time, Warren Entner, you probably yeah, sure. know Warren, Faster um, Pussycat, uh, whoever, he, sure. Rage, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quiet Riot, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> metal band, and he, in the Hall of Fame. He, yeah. th- he's a perfect example of that transition, right? Sure. Like, look at his yeah. roster yeah. in the mid '80s. Yeah. And then in the early 90s, to rage, he, faith, no more. Yeah. Like yeah. Us and yeah. L7. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yeah. No, he called me. I think we were talking about a mastering day or, or evaluating the mastering. And he was like, dude, I got some bad news. You're, you're turning in an album to a label that doesn't exist. Um, so we have no idea what's going to happen, what they're going to do with your contract. They're trying to sell the whole label with all the artists intact and you know they're being uh vague about the whole thing so you know sorry <laughs> and, you, and you must have known you had something special with that record because that record in particular was probably your culmination of all these years of songwriting was like you, you must have known you were onto something really well great i don't record. know i mean we were so insecure about our um you know, the size of the band or mm. the popularity of the band at that point, you know, the re- previous record had done like 40,000 or something. So it was, which, which now would be amazing, right. but like <laughs> back then was like, uh, yeah, next album, please. Yeah. Um, so, but I did know this, we put everything into fantastic planet. Yeah. I mean, every, everything we had as artists and, and, and sort of creativity, uh, we had put into that record and to know that there was a possibility it may never come out was yeah that was mm-hmm. that was a dark time yeah and would it be safe to say ken that you didn't love the touring process or don't love it as much as the recording process itself and as a band do you love being on the road or do you guys prefer being in the studio I mean, overall, I would pick the studio over touring because you're getting to be creative more of the time you know but having said that i mean and just kind of going back in the history of the band a little bit like when kelly kelly joined the band on the touring for the second record yeah and so that was a really important moment i mean fantastic planet obviously would go on to be an important thing but that was really the moment where i felt like our live shows became like a band yeah like we rocked out together. Yeah. Um, and so when we went in to do Fantastic Planet, 
we had that kind of like mojo between us yeah. where we knew how to like, yeah, let's do it. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and that just kind of kept going, you know, and it has expanded. And now, you know, we can go, we could have an idea like, hey, why don't we just improvise jam for a month, record it all, don't write any songs or arrange, just jam together, just let our brains go crazy and see where that takes us in the album making process. And uh, the result is this new record. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into the new record, but 17 years between all these sets of records, right? The three records before and the three records now. So what was it that sort of brought the band back together? I mean, I heard in some interviews that it was really kids between Greg and, and you, Ken, that you kind of bonded on having a family, right? Was that sort of part of the impetus of getting back together, just calling your buddy and saying, hey, you know, let's talk about our kids. By the way, maybe we should consider getting back together. Well, we when we broke up in 97, it wasn't pretty. And so, like the distance between Greg and I from then to even 10 years later was still pretty significant. Mm. Like we didn't hang out too much. We heard about each other's movements or whatever yeah. through others. And it was yeah. this, we were estranged yeah. for sure. Yeah, we didn't hang out at all. No. Yeah. I mean, uh, we didn't talk at all. There, mm -mm. there was for, I, I don't know how long it was. I think there was like a, 12 or 15 year period where maybe we talked once or well we did the when we did the golden thing that was like maybe 10 years i think that was like 2007 2008 so we kind of hung out to do that it's just kind of like not as not intending to reignite the band at all more like looking at it like the band has been done for a long time here's some archival stuff that people might like yeah but that was the sort of big, we made contact at least through that. Mm. And then a few years after that, we had kids. We, we, had, we both had our first uh, kids within uh, like five or six months of each other. And th that is, that's where we did start hanging out a lot because we put the two kids together, right? right? You almost just need a buddy to call and say, hey, how do I change the diapers over here? What's going well, on? Well, just so. the stress of being a new parent, you're looking for someone to talk to yeah. about that stuff totally. and just sure. yeah and it i mean it was it was pretty innocent that we were just hanging out like that but um it, you just you couldn't avoid that hanging in the air yeah. was this you know looming yeah why do you think you took a break for so long obviously you did your solo record you did i mean you had various projects on and uh you're the rabbit i believe right but why, why do you think it was so long? Before? Did you just have to pursue other things that creatively that you think just sort of, you know, musically it was another direction that you all wanted to take? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just... It, I mean, for, for me, there was never... I wasn't thinking that we would... You know, we did the, the golden thing, and but I wasn't thinking we would ever work together again. Really? And... Um, you know, because I had another band, I had Autolux, yeah. and uh, and I thought maybe we'd maybe we'd work together in a different way. Maybe we'd like score soundtracks or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I could imagine, but the idea of failure, uh, reforming, and 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 being a band again and making records was that that was the furthest thing from my mind but in a way when the so the internet probably brought back a lot of renewed interest in the band because again the records are so great and before you had the internet and whatever it was right 97 2000 i mean people weren't really there wasn't maybe a way to discover music as much as there is now and then people found this newfound interest in failure and realized how great those records were so that's probably one of the reasons i would imagine that there was some renewed interest in the band, right? Yeah, because we were hanging out, and I think some of the people around us were noticing that. And then they started telling us things like, you know, if you guys got back together, your 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 audience is bigger than it was in the 90s. Yeah. And we were like, huh, how do you know that? And yeah. they didn't, you, you couldn't prove it, yeah. right? <laughs> so you didn't have streaming services. There, yeah. To check the numbers, yeah. Right, so yeah. it was like, well, maybe, okay. And so it was like, but that that sort of, idea kept coming up like 
you have an audience there and if you wanted to make new music for them i think they would be receptive so mm. you should consider that and we just kept considering that and then we kind of started experimenting in my studio a little bit mm -hmm. and writing together and that was to me that when once we had those two songs um that ultimately ended up on the heart as a monster the first album back um I felt really strong about those songs and I felt st strong about our ability to still come up with music that sounded vital to me. Mm. And, and it, it, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just a, a retread. It wasn't trying to recapture former glory or whatever. Yeah. That was an inspiration. Um, it, yeah. It sounded, it sounded like new and it sounded like it could open a door and we could actually, um, you know, do, do interesting new relevant stuff. Um, and that, that was, uh, for me, that was what really inspired me to, to consider that. Definitely. And then we did our first show back. At the El Rey, uh, right? At the El Rey, yeah. which was kind of, um, you know, like Ken was just saying, we really had no idea. We'd heard, heard some things about that there was a fan base and th there was demand. But, um, until we did that show and it sold out and like, 30, 30, whatever. Like I heard 30 minutes. seconds or yeah. three minutes or whatever. <laughs> but it was Some multiple of three. <laughs> and uh, whatever and it is, there was a fan base it, there for sure. It, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it, it kind of shocked us. Yeah. And then, um, and then at the actual show, we realized that uh, a large percentage of the audience had traveled great distances to be there, like yeah. across the planet um, and, and across the U.S. And, um, and the that, other... that kind of changed. That, then we realized, like all of these yeah. rumors we had heard about the the cult following growing over the years, is true. actually yeah. true. Well, the, and the the other specific thing I think we noticed at that show was that there was a large a, a percentage of younger people mm. at the show who who clearly didn't know about the band in the nineties because yeah. they probably weren't born or were <laughs> yeah. toddlers. Yeah. So that was. Because, you know, you, you want to be, you know, vital, right? Yeah, you want to be not just appealing to the people that heard you 20 years ago, but you want to open up some new ears as well. So Definitely. when I saw that and actually spoke to some of them after the show, like spoke to a spoke to a kid who was like 18 and he was there with his whole band of 18 year olds and talking about. How, he 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 said, "You you broke up in '97 on the day I was born." <laughs> <laughs> we expected more receding hairlines at that show. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. And Kelly, it's it's uh, interesting. We were talking about this again before we started recording, but you were keeping busy too, right? You were doing stuff with Linda Perry and I'm trying and, to. Yeah, and, and what I didn't know is that we have this crazy connection that. Of course, I've been playing drums with Courtney Love for like ten years, and you played on yeah. some of those early yeah. some uh, of the recordings. Yeah. yeah, Letter to God, I believe you yeah. played on, right? Yeah, it's the great. Hit. Yeah, so so that's cool. So you were just staying busy. You you had a bunch of I, you studio know, I was stuff just you're doing, scrambling and saying yes, and yeah, trying yeah. to stay busy. I mean, I wasn't really useful at anything else. So, yeah. Um, you know, after the band broke up, I tried as best possible to remain playing music. Yeah, because Ken, you went on to have this incredible career as a producer and mixer, and work with incredible artists like Paramore. You worked on the Chris Cornell track for uh, James Bond movie and Beck, great, great artist. So again, like you found this whole nother life in production and mixing and going back to failure and starting this again. Was it a little bit daunting knowing you had a very successful career as a, a mixer and producer too? Was it was it like, hey, do I want to start up the, the band thing again after being very well known in, in this production space? Yeah, I had like, um, it was sort of like this uh, pattern where I would uh, try to do a a new artist project. Maybe the on thing was more of a solo album, and then I did another band, Year of the Rabbit. But uh, both of those ended in kind of like record label hell, basically. Right. And I kind of both times I swore off trying to be an artist again. Mm. You know, yeah. I was just like, why am I bothering doing this? I like to be in the studio. People are paying me to be in the studio right now. 
it's not my own music, but it's still kind of that creative environment. So yeah, forget this artist stuff. I'll let the other people handle it <laughs> that are maybe better at it. I don't know. Yeah. You know? But the, the failure thing, when that possibility came back, that was a different thing because there was already a real history there and mm. a real, um, there was a fan base already there, yeah. kind of ready to absorb it. And because of that, because of that fact that there was already a fan base, we were able to avoid the label industry situation mm. and and do it all ourselves, essentially. I mean, you, or I was going to say you did use Pledge Music for a while there, right? Before that went kaput, mm, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we've used services like Pledge. We we even. On the on the first record back, the Heart is a Monster, we licensed the record to a physical distributor who put the record in stores. Mm. But we still owned the masters. Yeah. We d we weren't beholden to a record label. Sure. And importantly, we didn't need tour support. Yeah, yeah. So, very different situation um, to walk into as an artist. It's a, it's like walking into a band that's already kind of like at a certain level. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was much easier and much more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. So much more enjoyable to yeah. just have do it yourself, do it yourself yeah. and do it with your friends. Yeah. But talk about that for a moment, like doing it yourself now versus being on a label like slash Warner brothers for years. Right. Talk about the process and, and, and what that means to a band like failure. Cause again, such a great record. The new record already, I think was charting on the, t on the alternative rock charts, like top 10, I believe. Right. Mm. Which is amazing. Right. For yeah. a DIY record and something you put out yourselves. Yeah. So and, and it must make stores. you, yeah, it must make you pretty proud. Right. Cause it's a great record by the way. And also to have it charting doing it yourself is pretty interesting. Right. So talk about, you know, how a band like yourselves deals with the business side of that versus being on a major and what that means. I mean, I was talking to, you were just talking about Kelly, like you, you're self-managed now, I believe. Right. Yeah. And so, yep. and talk about the, you know, the, the business of music now, where it's all gone for you as a band. Well, I think there's a, a kind of a misnomer out there that once you're signed by a record label, your artist career is um, kind of taken care of. Right. Right. It's just a loan. That's <laughs> yeah. all it is. You it's know, a bank. It's a loan. But it, the reality is you actually have to the the real work actually starts when you get signed because now you don't just have to promote your product your music or whatever to the public and music listeners and or music buyers whatever you want to call them you you have to promote yourself to your own label exactly for yeah. attention yeah because they've got a roster and they are prioritizing that roster every minute of every day it, you're 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 either you know second third fourth yeah. fifth it, it yeah. in the money right in and how much money they're spending so you find yourself trapped in these situations where the politics the internal politics of the label and what's going on there with those personalities and their other acts are having huge Im as are having huge impact on mm. on your what we're trying to do so if you i mean when we we avoided that it's like only the people who are really invested in the band doing well are now working for us yeah because if you're on a label you, they are sort of interested in you doing well but not at the expense of another artist doing well or you know it just depends who your person is you yeah. know that's there and I, I think for a lot of a lot of acts and certainly for me um in my history with labels is that you come in with one team signing you who are big believers and they want to help your career they all get fired well by the time your <laughs> record's done they're all gone right. yeah right. yeah <laughs> in one of the endless cycles of regime changes right, as right. they say yeah. so it's just kind of it's just so confusing and frustrating and, and just kind of, you feel helpless, mm. really. It became the, an obstacle. Yeah. Because yeah. even back then, I think Slash probably had Faith No More, if I'm correct, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, tour comes in, Guns N' Roses, like, should we put Faith No More on it? Should we put Failure on it? How do they prioritize, right? So now your career is in your own hands, right? Mm -hmm. So you talk about, like, 
the new record, like let's talk about the new record for a moment. So touring in this world, this crazy pandemic world we're in, talk, I mean, are you guys going to go out on the road? Do you have plans? Are there other plans to promote the record? I, I think I heard you talking about possibly a pay-per-view thing, right? Possibly a pay-per-view thing. We're mulling that over and we are going to announce a real tour, North American tour in, in the next month or so. Great. And fingers yeah. crossed we actually get to play it this time. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, we had some several shows canceled mm. in the summer of 2020 from the pandemic. Yeah. Is is it daunting for you to think about going out now on the road? Are you are you at peace with like what's going on? Just figured it is what it is. You know, we've gotten vaccinated, boosted, whatever it may be. And it's going to be what it is. Like we just have to get out there and live lives. Or how do you feel about touring in this era? What's going on? So many tours are canceled and rebooked. And well, I'm I for me, I'm specifically worried about getting ill period right, right because the last tour that we did in 2019 b before covid mm. i ended up with pneumonia at the wow. end wow yeah and I, I had to cancel one of the shows on that tour for because i couldn't even walk basically yeah. so i had it too for like a week i i don't know you know we, we're not playing massive places so the audience is kind of close face. sure and I'm singing like a lot right. in a failure set. So sure. my mouth is open and I'm my my whole you know throat is kind of exposed and raw. Yeah. And uh, you know it's you're ripe for getting yeah, yeah. a cold or yeah. a flu. Yeah. And God forbid not COVID. You yeah. know, but we'll be we'll be all vaxxed up. That's yeah. for sure. It's a little scary. Yeah. And but you I worry about the fans too. It's like putting, you know, a few hundred people in close proximity mm. and, you know, God forbid, I don't want anyone to get hurt yeah. at one of our shows. Definitely. I, I totally agree. So this new record, obviously, there's no upcoming shows yet, but uh, just alternative ways to promote the record like this that we're doing here. Mm -hmm. um, so but the pay-per-view thing sounds great. I think that'd be great. I think a lot of people would tune into that. So. I'm all for you guys doing that if you decide to do that. Okay. I'll definitely be there virtually. Okay. For sure. Um, what are your thoughts about where we're going, like just for the future? I, I feel like, Ken, you're really into sort of where technology is going. You always had, you were always really into gear and you are very into gear and sort of the tech side of things. So do you feel like uh, failure will be performing in the metaverse anytime soon? Is that someplace <laughs> you see people buying land there now? I'm, I'm so out of the loop with what's going on in life here. Right? Yeah. Do there need to be not virtual concerts they, in the not metaverse? Until the metaverse starts having like legs. Right, right. But I feel like that could be the next thing, right? Bands performing in the metaverse could be like a new thing. I don't even know what the metaverse is. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. It's uh, the new where you only exist in virtually. In virtual, yeah, it's pretty you know, fascinating. I mean, you do people your meetings, are, you do your shopping, you live yeah. your life from your couch in a virtual world. They haven't figured out how to do the leg thing yet. Yeah, uh, that's just because, uh, I mean, that exists because we're all in denial of the fact that we're already in the metaverse. Right, yeah. we might be in it already, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw someone bought like a, a million dollar plot of land next to Snoop Dogg's virtual house in the metaverse like this week. So I was just thinking, again, I'm sure concerts are the next things that are going to take place in the future here in this virtual world. But um, what are other ways that you're doing to promote for, for a band that's doing it yourself? Because it is such a great record. And again, just talking about the fact that it's charting already. What are other things that you guys will do to promote this record? Um, I don't know. I mean, we're not doing anything really th that different. We're doing social media. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing things like this. We, we are getting more requests for interviews first for sure yeah. Yeah. compared to the last record it seems like press is liking this record a little bit more the record's definitely doing the heavy lifting this time out yeah yeah i definitely feel that yeah. i definitely feel that like we can just kind of like do the normal stuff book the tour and you know, kind of let the music speak for itself. And know. how important are videos for you these days? Because you actually directed oh. music videos years ago. And uh, mm -hmm. again, doing this deep dive, finding all these things about you that I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that you directed a few videos that ended up on MTV that were in that. What was it called? I think failure was starting to form. But I was going out to shows and just enjoying local bands. And one that I found that I just loved and kept seeing all their shows was this band called Block, mm. B-L-O-C female singer Nels Klein was one of the two guitarists he was kind of a 
really interesting musician um, now, uh, still. Um, Remember but, they did that cover of Baby, You're a Rich Man? Yeah. And he did that crazy uh, guitar part that, I don't even know what instrument that is on the Beatles record, but he mimicked it. Mm -hmm. With a pedal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I just, I was in film school and I had to turn in a project, mm. like an actual completed thing. It could be a scene, like from a, a narrative scene. It could be a documentary or it could be a music video. And of course, I was... I picked music video because I love music. <laughs> so. and, it, and it was the era of MTV back then. It was, and it and was. It, yeah. And they had this thing called... Basement Tapes. Basement Tapes, tapes right. That's basement what it was. Tapes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So an unsigned band could make a video, send it into MTV, and they did it once a month, basically. The MTV editorial would pick four of those videos, play them during the, this half-hour show called Basement Tapes, and while the video was playing, there was a 1-900 number underneath, and you could call and vote. Uh -huh. And uh, the video I did for Block One. Amazing. And and that, in a weird roundabout way, kind of launched my career as a video director. But strangely, my first 10 major label videos after that video were all hip-hop videos. Mm. So that, <laughs> that was before uh, In the Same Gang and... Yeah. And uh, what was Salt, Salt and Pepper? Tea. Would you? Yeah, I did salt and pepper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I did. I did like ten videos for Ice T. Like a whole record, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. I did a whole just just me and him, just a camera <laughs> and him. He's like, I'm just gonna sit here and hold this flashlight, make a video. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he, you had a budget of like a thousand dollars for twenty videos. I think it was a thousand dollars for each video, right. but yeah. And, well, he was you, he was a big metal guy though too. He had body count. He, yeah, he had he body likes, count. Yeah, so yeah. he was really into that too. Uh -huh. um, but are there plans to make more videos for this record? Yeah, I just don't know if we have a. I don't, I don't have an idea yet for one. I mean, okay. we did one for Headstand with yeah. the the insect video. <laughs> that's well, Kelly Iggy. still has that's that. That's Iggy. Yeah, is, uh, the praying mantis. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. That's his pet. Yeah. Ah, awesome. Yeah. Oh, I for one would I would imagine one of the next singles would be submarines. I don't know if you guys feel like that. Would it's it's one That's, of the obvious choices for me on the, the record to be the next single. Yeah, sure. We and we did, did a lyric video for it. Okay. Because one thing about being like self managed um, and not having a label is that sometimes we're not very thorough about our schedule right. yeah <laughs> you showed up here well, so that's what matters a, right? so a video like, is yeah. you know they don't make themselves yeah. like, <laughs> it usually requires like a budget Capital. Sure, and sure. especially we have all these other things that we have to do yeah so it's like you know well, i just I think... remember calling up monica who's our publicist yeah. and saying hey we just finished this new record and um it's coming out in three weeks. Can you help us with some press? <laughs> <laughs> well, because the record just dropped December 3rd, right? Yeah, so right. If you Which is another good thing about not having a label. We yeah. get to put out a record at Christmas. Yeah. So, yeah, they won't. Yeah, literally. Yeah. If, you're, if you're not a platinum act already, you Everyone, can't. Don't even, release a record They won't let you re <laughs> no. release your record. No, next the, year. Yeah. By the way, it worked in your favor because it already charted. So obviously it worked in your favor. <sighs> There's so many little like... Um, kind of ideas about when you should do things or how you should do things yeah. in the music business that have no relevance at all yeah. anymore. Do you still keep in touch with Maynard? Are you guys still friendly? Um, like I said, he was on the show about a month ago. So, um, Greg is more in with Maynard because he's in Pucifer right oh, now. Oh, that's right. Oh, cool. So, yeah. so yeah. Maynard was on the show talking about Pucifer and the record you guys did together. Yeah, the um, Existential Reckoning. And, yeah. and then I've done for um kind of pay-per-view events with them right yeah the titles and all those things were so dumb i couldn't even really i was like i'm gonna try and memorize these things but i'm not gonna yeah. attempt to do this mm. i was like but uh it would be great to see you tour with those guys you know i think they're going out next year so obviously there's a history and a connection with those so um another great band for sure well it's exciting i love the new record definitely if you guys do not have a copy of it pick it up um pick up anything failure related you know, as I mentioned before, Fantastic Final, also one of my favorite records of all time. So um, I always talk about this other band, Jellyfish. That's mm. one of my favorite bands yeah. of all time. Roger. Too. So, yeah, Standing Roger. And drummer. Just, yeah, just amazing. I just did so, a session with Roger. 
Oh, you did? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So I, I love uh, you guys have these records that have been stuck in my memory for years and huge fans. So um, and if, if there is a pay-per-view special, make sure you tune in for sure. Uh, I love what you guys are doing. And, and again, I love the Sean Daly connection. And I'm sorry yeah. that I didn't remember that initially. But uh, anything else we should promote because this is uh, this is the time and place. Were you guys fans of Spin Magazine growing up? Did you? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Great. So. Spin was Spin was a big deal in the 90s. Yeah, we sure. appeared in it in the 90s. And each we definitely had a talk about how important we were going to be after seeing that. Yeah, it's been great to uh, <laughs> to be part of the official Spin Magazine podcast family it's been great and and a lot of history there so i'm sure i know it's been uh is a big fan of the band too which is great and so yeah so look out for the record for sure if you don't have it make sure you pick it up uh love the record we'll definitely tune into the pay-per-view if you guys do it and i'll make sure i check you guys out on tour coming up hopefully that will be sometime next year uh, are there dates yet or not really it's still a little bit pending. um there's dates, dates there's okay. dates there will be announced in january okay yeah. great and will this be like a theater run, you think, or will it be with another band? Or It's going to be a headline run. Amazing. I'm looking for a scoop here, Kent, so I'm trying to get yeah, the Yeah, I'm not uh, going to give you the just, official <laughs> scoop. It'll, it'll probably be just us. An evening with. Yeah, awesome. no, it's it's going to be a full, full like North American headline run. Amazing. Thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, check out the new record once again. And... There you go. Failure. Thanks, awesome. guys. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you, Scott. it. Of course. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that was fun. A great bunch of guys. Ken Andrews, Greg Edwards, Kelly Scott of Failure. A great new record in Wild Type Droid. Make sure you go out and pick it up. I am on Cameo, so check me out there. Happy New Year once again, even though it is January 24th or so, or some odd when you're listening to this. So stay safe. See you soon. And check out the new episodes coming soon. We've got LP, Cassandra Jenkins, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. And if you like the show, it is free. Make sure you tell a few friends about the show, rate it, and review it on iTunes. Much appreciated, and speak to you soon. How'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of The Ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.